0: Welcome back to Making Conversation, a podcast featuring conversations with artists and designers about the journey from bright eyed newbie to fame monster. My name is Justin Ulm, and this is my co host, Sean Choi, the scapegoat. And we are here today with Ross Milne from Working Formats. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is episode 11 that we're recording right now, yeah. climbing up into double digits. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're here today with Ross, and Ross works and lives here in Vancouver, Canada, um, where he studied at Emily Carr University. After graduating with a degree in communication design, he moved to The Hague in the Netherlands, where he pursued postgraduate education in type design at Type and Media, um, he, where he completed the master course there at uh, Connicklage. I'd help you, but I'd probably stumble uh, far worse than you when I spent a year there.
1: So all I can tell you is that the IJ is pronounced I. Oh, okay.
0: And the, the J is pronounced, yeah. So yeah. You, can, uh, you can stumble through it again if you want. Yeah, no. I, I think I'm going to pass on that. But, <laughs> uh, in English, the Royal Academy of Art? The Royal Academy of Art, that's right. Uh, yeah, cool. Um, so after spending some time there, he moved to San Francisco, where he worked at a handful of boutique design offices, and then eventually returned to Vancouver in 2009. Um, He currently is a contributing designer at Commercial Type in New York and Type Tech in The Hague. Um, And as described on the Working Format website, uh, his studio specializes in identity design, type, and lettering projects for a range of cultural groups, retail products, passionate startups, and notable advertising agencies working format helps their clients build rich visual personalities that connect their brand to their readers and followers. How does it feel to have somebody read that out for you? Yeah. It,
1: it, it sounds very uh,
0: poetic and
1: only slightly embarrassing after the amount of time spent to craft such simple, short sentences. Uh, yeah, no, no. A nice. long time on. That's yeah. a, It's interesting. Cool. <laughs> um, okay. yeah.
2: So Ross, um, tell us the uh, story of how Working Format got started. Working Format started,
1: uh, it must have been about four years ago now. Uh, I just returned to Vancouver uh, from San Francisco, as Justin had suggested, and coming back here was very much uh, coming home, a decision to come mm-hmm. home. When we left Vancouver, uh, I think we always knew, uh, I want to say we as my wife and I, uh, we always knew we wanted to return. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vancouver is a city we moved to um, more or less as adults and just fell in love with and, and continue to love. Uh, so coming back here was always important. Um, we came back at the, I guess, fall of 2008, more or less, at mm-hmm. uh, the, I guess, pinnacle of the recession. Uh, even though it didn't <laughs> hit Canada nearly as hard as the US, uh, coming from San Francisco, things were quite uh, downtrodden. Mm-hmm. And even in Canada, I think just job opportunities uh, weren't overly plentiful. And I, I was a new, uh, fairly young designer, I still mm-hmm. am in many ways, I guess. And uh, I didn't have a ton of experience under my belt, but I knew that at some point I wanted to work for myself and be in control of the work I did, but more importantly, just allow myself the freedom to um, take on a number of different projects regardless of what they were or who they were for. And I had kind of a hit list, I guess you could call it, of various studios that I was interested in working for. Mm I won't name them here. Uh, <laughs> needless to say, I did not get a job at any of them. Uh, and it, it's kind of laughable now. Uh, but I, I essentially took that as, well, instead of expanding that list, um, I'm just going to fast track mm-hmm. what I want to do anyway, yeah. which is work for myself. And so Working Format was really born out of... Uh, uh, just a decision to say, you know what, let's remain stubborn. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's something I recommend to all my students when I teach uh, now is really to remain as stubborn as possible and take on the work and take on the jobs that are meaningful to you, at least as much as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. I realize it's, that's different for everybody. Uh, but it was born out of that. It was born out of a, a lack of job opportunities <laughs> and, a, and a stubbornness to expand my horizons. <laughs>
2: yeah. um, so um, how many people are on your team now?
1: Uh, working format is, as it stands, just myself. Mm-hmm. I run it as a solo practice. When it started, it was uh, three of us. Uh, there were myself and two others, <laughs> uh, my wife and another partner uh, named A.B. Quinn. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all got into it for different reasons. Um, it, it I, I guess about two years on, uh number of things uh happened in each of our personal lives mm-hmm. uh that caused us to go our separate ways um uh, very amicably i'm still married to my wife for instance <laughs> yeah. um people always people always ask that when they say what happened to grace yeah. so oh, don't worry she's still around yeah. um still kicking yeah. <laughs> always seems to come up in conversation very very early uh i i think Looking back on it, the, uh, I always wanted to work for myself and working mm-hmm. format was something that I was always very, very passionate about. And that's not to say that the others didn't. I think they, they certainly wanted to work for themselves. Um, the circumstance and, and life pulls you in different directions. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I had a decision to either carry on as myself, uh, or try something new. And I just really still liked what I had. Mm-hmm. And, um, it gave me an opportunity to refocus myself as well and so becoming a one person studio uh, solo practice allowed me to refocus back on what i love which is type and type design uh
0: how did you guys come up with the name working format yeah it's a i think that's an interesting story that was
1: not my name specifically that i came up with um i can attribute that to ab's influence mm-hmm. uh ab is a brilliant designer and uh i think is doing and will continue to tremendous things um for me i was always terrified um having to think about your work and your business uh, 10, 20 more years out. Mm -hmm. Uh, My father uh, runs his own business and always has, so I kind of grew up under his wings in a way. And one of his pieces of advice was to think Long term, but I always found that very, very daunting. Mm -hmm. And I like the name working format because it implies that everything is in flux. Mm -hmm. That, um, the very nature of the business, the very nature of the practice is itself a working format. That what it does today might be different than what it does, uh, you know, a year from now or even six months from now. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, It affords itself the opportunity to be pulled and pushed in various directions. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, And I think that's, uh, Quite frankly, a nice way to respond to projects as well.
0: When you guys started the company, did you have like sort of a philosophy powwow where you, like, I know you said that you really wanted to be independent, I guess, and work for yourselves, but was there sort of like a, you know, manifesto written? I wouldn't say so. We never sat down together and
1: said, this is what this studio is about. I think that, uh, we had a certain amount of let's just do this mentality. Mm-hmm. This is what we want to do. We've all worked together previously. We all get along. Let's just do this. Uh, I think that worked for us in a number of ways because we didn't get too caught up in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that still remains true now. Um, there are certainly downsides to that. And I applaud anyone that can sit down <laughs> and r- kind of record that so-called manifesto. Yeah, uh, It's never been something I've been tremendously great at. Uh, I think one of my, uh, strengths and, and I guess in turn weaknesses is my lack of ability to focus and be happy focusing on specific things. <laughs> Again, it comes back to the name working format. I like being pushed and pulled in different directions.
0: How do you guys go about getting work? Like, have you found in Vancouver you're often, um, like pursuing clients or have you had people approaching you? Um, yeah, we're just curious to know.
1: I've been very fortunate uh, to never really have to go after a lot of projects mm-hmm. Vancouver's I think still a small enough place that who you know can carry you quite far mm-hmm. uh, provided you you know meet what they're asking you to do and, and <laughs> still uh, I think do good work fundamentally. Uh, things lead to things quite easily, in my experience. <coughs> uh, I guess ab- above and beyond that, this is a good time to say that my specialty is really type and type design, as mm-hmm. Justin suggested in the little intro, which <laughs> is also a little bit embarrassing. Our homage. The homage. Yeah. Debbie Millman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, ex- yeah, my specialty is in type and type design. Mm-hmm. So when I'm done being unfocused, uh, when I'm done trying a number of different things and things that work and things that don't work I always seem to come back to type and type design and I say those as two different I guess groupings because uh, I enjoy creating type fundamentally uh, I think about it as creating tools for designers mm-hmm. to use mm-hmm. uh, assets and also using type in more broader graphic design projects and I see these two things as very um, beneficial to each other that one, certainly the, the creation of type can inform, uh, projects on the graphic design side. And you learn a lot about how to create type by using type. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always kind of underpinned my, my, um, my practice and simply having that specialty to answer your question has always allowed me to,
2: I, I guess have a bit of an identity mm-hmm. and not really have to fight for it. Mm-hmm. Do you have the um, defined process for each project you take on? Uh, I wish I had a defined process <laughs> just like I wish I had a uh, a design philosophy
1: that I could uh, ascribe to. Uh, I'm realizing that when I talk like this it makes me sound like a, a very uh, kind of you know, float in the wind kind it's of guy good. but uh oddly, it's quite the opposite. I think I'm the most um, uh, neurotically detailed, Mm. kind of (laughs) pre-organized to the point of fault person I know. Uh, In fact, I love the project management side of projects as much, uh, sometimes more, than the creative side of projects. (laughs) Um, uh, I have a process that I try to follow. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And it sounds cliche, and quite frankly it is, but every project is different. Yeah. Uh, in my type design work, uh, projects can last uh, six months to two three years, mm-hmm. and it becomes very challenging uh, but very important to have at least a process that you're following. Uh, a current project that I'm working on, I started almost two years ago now mm-hmm. uh, over Christmas, just a little hobby project. Wow. And I worked on it for about three or four months mm-hmm. and then I got busy with client commission projects and I put it, put it to bed for a little bit and then six months later you pick it yeah. up and there's always a challenge of where do you start again. Yeah. Uh, when you look at something with fresh eyes, there's always a tendency to want to uh, I guess, revise mm-hmm. and overhaul everything. Okay. Yeah. And this has already happened two or three times with this project. So having some sort of process is fundamental. Uh, you have to uh, have a process that allows you to have a certain amount of restraint, um, to not explore every single direction. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the very idea of working format, having a bit of freedom to take the time where necessary to diverge and to try something new is is, is certainly important to me.
2: How and where do you find inspiration?
1: I used to really try to collect imagery. Mm-hmm. And I found that I just became exhausted by it. <laughs> uh, I have this archive of stuff that was reasonably well uh, organized, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes by month or, or date, other times by style or subject matter. I'm talking kind of like a design reference mm-hmm. archive of things mm-hmm. I like, things I like to look at, things that um, provoke me in some way. But I found after a while... I put all my time into collecting and none of my time into actually looking at it. Mm. And when a project came around where I actually did look at it, it always just felt really forced. Right. Uh, I've never been great at looking and translating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that I really like history. I really like theory. I like thinking a lot before a project mm-hmm. writing, um, considering the strategy uh, of a project and then working with that. Uh, that's yeah it's always kind of provided the foundation of most projects whether type or graphic design related
0: uh when you returned back to vancouver and got going with working format um how do you how did you feel about the design scene in vancouver after leaving you know a place like the netherlands and going to san francisco um like what are your thoughts on the scene here
1: when I came back and it could just simply be because of my age and my exposure at the time, likely it was, uh, it didn't feel like there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. I'm sure part of that was the contrast of coming from, as you said, a tremendously rich culture for design. Uh, to give you a sense in, in the Netherlands, studying type design for a master's is on its own a pretty, yeah. Rare and unique thing, uh, but it's such a big part of that culture—not just graphic design, but type specifically—that you could go into a bar and, as you're ordering a drink, and I, this actually happened to me, uh, strike up casual conversation with whoever is beside you, um, and when the question of what do you do comes to you know uh, comes out, you say, "Oh, I'm going to school uh, studying type design." the response is not what does that mean or at best oc mean like fonts yeah. it's actually an insightful insightful oh i have a connection to that through this mm-hmm. and so there's a there's an awareness there mm-hmm. that is almost like talking to a doctor or talking to um an architect talking mm-hmm. to a school teacher other professions that here we really applaud and really prize um there of course they they um, value those as well, but design and design professionals are certainly a part of that culture. And so going from that and being educated in that was one of the best experiences of my life. I, I will never forget it. Uh, I will never leave it behind. Mm-hmm. Um, translating that to here is always a challenge. Uh, anyone who's traveled, uh, you go to Europe, you go to Asia, you go to anywhere and there's always this tendency to want to bring back that culture with you mm-hmm. and it in my experience uh say you go to france and you you want to have you want to adopt this idea of the <laughs> mid-afternoon coffee and just yeah. take time out you know for 2 hours have a coffee have a uh, you know a nice sandwich <laughs> it always works for 2 weeks yeah, right. and then you know inex- inexplicably it just stops working right. and you get back into the mode of living here. And I think it's it's the same with professional practice as well, that uh, you try your best to adopt uh, and to embrace what you experience elsewhere, but there is this intangible way of being um, that exists wherever you are. And Vancouver certainly has that. I think Vancouver's growing up really, really fast um, as far as its creative industry goes, uh, design and, and much broader than design uh motion interactive uh, mm-hmm. i think is uh there's some amazing things happening here uh, companies like giant ant that didn't exist right. you know 3 to 5 years ago that are i think one of the best at what they do possibly north america wide um coming from here right so
0: um is custom lettering and type design something that you feel like you have to sell to a lot of vancouver businesses that approach you for Commission work or are people like genuinely seeking you out because of the value they have for that type of work?
1: Type design in Vancouver is definitely, uh, it's, I'd say it's lacking. Uh, it's, it hasn't kind of caught up with the maybe popular culture or appeal for graphic design in general. And it's, I guess, in some ways too much to expect that it will. It is a very niche profession and niche, niche endeavor. Uh, Usually when type uh, kind of comes to the fore in projects or in conversations, it's more on the lettering side. Mm-hmm. And I find that I am I have to really clarify and fight for type design specifically. Uh, I think in a lot of ways globally, uh, and certainly here, we're in this golden age of type. There's this odd appreciation for type and lettering that, uh, certainly here has probably never existed and, and elsewhere in the world hasn't existed for a, a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And what I mean, what I mean by that is an appreciation for this, um, uh, primarily American, very vernacular style of lettering. Um, think baseball scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, think, uh, butcher shop, deli signage, right? Uh, People are buying t-shirts that just have random phrases on it, I think in large part because there's this really cool lettering on it. And so there's this appreciation for lettering. Um, type design is this somewhat nerdy <laughs> discipline on the side that involves letters, uh, but it's kind of misunderstood. And so for me, uh, I identify more with the type design side of what I do um, than say the lettering side. I think there's other people in Vancouver that do lettering tremendously well. It's not so much what I do, uh, well, I like type design because it's much more about uh, letters and the system of letters. Uh, it's understanding the space between letters and the, the white space as much as the black space of the shapes themselves, understanding the unpredictability of how uh, letters set in different languages. Uh, again, you're building tools for someone, whereas when you're designing a logo or a piece of lettering, the brief is usually pretty clear. You know where it's going to be used, you know how it's going to be used. Uh, you know the context around it, you know what media it will be used on and so it changes the nature of what you're doing.
2: Does most of your work come from within Vancouver or does your international path keep you connected to business from other cities or regions of the world? Mm-hmm. I'd say on the type design side of things
1: it's all international. Mm-hmm. I do very very few projects uh, in type design uh, that are commissioned anyway here. Uh, usually, they come from large advertising agencies, and usually when a custom typeface is commissioned, it requires a pretty visionary client, mm-hmm. uh, and it requires a very large client. Uh, I recently finished a project for McDonald's Canada, and so mm-hmm. that gives you a sense of the size of the clients that typically can commission uh, custom typefaces. Mm-hmm. Usually, the cost is just uh, too exorbitant uh, to really make work for a small client over a short period of time. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, On the graphic design side of what I do, it's I I work with a lot of local companies and I really value local companies. Uh, I've always tried to take on a lot of cultural and civic projects wherever possible, uh, whether it's things that I start or uh, clients that have come to me. Uh, I got to work with a uh, group uh, that was organizing the Kamigata Maru um, 100th anniversary uh, exhibitions last, Mm -hmm. I guess it was this last January. Uh, it was an event that happened in 1914, uh, shaped Vancouver and in many ways defines Vancouver's multiculturalism to this day and really challenges the idea of what it is to be uh, a Canadian, especially a white Canadian in multicultural Canada. Uh, I knew nothing about this event ahead of time. I was asked to do uh, much of the branding, identity and, and initial marketing work for it. Uh, and learning about it and, and having to learn about it has uh, really I think challenged me as, mm-hmm. as a designer, but again, as, as a Canadian. Mm-hmm. And so taking those projects on is, is always really rewarding.
2: So we were looking at your portfolio and admiring your work with type. And we'd like to know how you started drawing fonts.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I didn't know art classes in high school <laughs> or junior high. I,
1: I probably took a few, I don't know, as little, you know, hobby things, mostly to get my, you know, get me out of the house mm-hmm. from my parents. Uh, so they could have some free time, yeah. uh, I got into design school, and I think one of the first classes I, I had was a type class with a teacher who is no longer Emily Carr. Uh, I wish he was. Uh, his name is Keith Town, and we started in the first few weeks of first year uh, type one, doing calligraphy, and then we uh, took a bit of knowledge from that calligraphy. We were we were working with uh, broad nib calligraphy, very kind of traditional looking stuff, and he asked us to build. A series of letters that was, would form a partial alphabet. It wasn't digital. It was all pen and ink, mm-hmm. very, very rough. And I just took to it. I, I, I immediately loved the, the shapes, the quality of the shapes, the idea that this was something that is so kind of embedded mm-hmm. in what we do. Um, but still, I, I think from that point on, I never drew a letter. I never did, uh, custom lettering right. in my education. I think when I was in design school, it was still a bit in advance of that wave mm-hmm. of, uh, of appeal for type and lettering. There was no one else, even in my, even in my school at the time that was doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I liked it. I knew that I liked it, and I knew I wanted to do more education. So I applied to two schools. Uh, the two schools that I knew of that had an English speaking program in postgraduate type design. One was the University of Reading in England, mm-hmm. just outside London. And the other was, uh, uh, The Hague, uh, type and media at the Royal Academy of Art. Royal College of Art? Royal Academy of Art. Royal Academy of Art. And uh, I got into both, and it was a very challenging decision because... They are very different programs. Anyone that's listening that has an interest in this, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you've investigated already and you know the difference. One is very, very historical, uh, that being Reading in England. They have an incredible archive of material uh, to draw on. It's much more of a university style degree where you uh, write a, a fairly lengthy thesis document, uh, dissertation as part of your studies. And in many ways, the way I'm geared lends itself perfectly to Reading. Uh, I knew that I would be at home there Mm -hmm. in a lot of, in a lot of ways beyond just the English speaking kind of Mm -hmm. comfort zone. Uh, The Hague on the other hand is a very mysterious program. Um, They've never done a lot to advertise it or market it beyond just the evangelical nature of the students to finish it. Uh, And I really mean that we, we, have all become ambassadors for this program that want everybody to do it because it is so phenomenal. Uh, it's a year long. You, uh, in any given day, spend an hour with a chisel and a piece of stone, stone carving, and then the next hour, you're learning Python programming from the brother of the person that invented Python. The next hour, you're learning to build um Type in mm-hmm. software that was developed by a previous student of the program mm-hmm. that since became the industry, or one of the industry standards. Wow. Uh, I can go on and on. You just you cover this incredible range of ways of creating mm-hmm. form. Um, it, they introduce an idea that has very much shaped how I work and how I design, which is this idea that you can create your own tools. Uh, I think anyone that codes or develops, I think understands this intuitively. But going through school, it was a very foreign, foreign concept for me. Uh, you have the Adobe Creative Suite, and, and perhaps, depending on what you do, an array of other software that you use. <clears throat> These are just tools. Mm-hmm. Tools in the same way that a pen, an eraser, and a pencil are tools. They do different things, of course, but they are tools. And they all have limitations. Mm-hmm. They all work in certain ways. And I think part of being a good artist, good creative person, good designer... Uh, if you're a, a cook, a good chef, is working with good tools, working with tools that are are primed for what you are going to do. Otherwise, it just becomes a bit of a challenge, uh, mm-hmm. necessarily. Uh, so this idea that you could create your own tools really uh, stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And going back to what I was saying before about the two programs, one was very historical, one was very experimental, I think you could say. I knew that the historical... Um, emphasis of Reading was perfectly in line with how I think, how I work, how I get inspired uh, from your earlier question. And it was, I had actually almost signed the papers to go to Reading. Uh, uh, it was partly my decision, partly my wife's just sheer um, disdain for going to Reading for some reason. <laughs> she, she just did not want to go. Um, uh, I ended up choosing The hague primarily'm uh, sure my wife had a, a lot of influence more than i 'll ever know, but uh, I tell myself that it was because I wanted to uh, kind of throw myself out of my comfort zone it 's probably just my wife uh, Tears go a long way a lot more than the idealism of uh, of trying to throw myself out of my comfort zone. Um, but I did that. So I went to, I went to The Hague. And, uh, as I said, it just, it was a unparalleled experience, um, going there. And I think that when it comes to type, uh, typography education, um, kind of going forward, Mm -hmm. I think when I was in school, we were still working at the edge of the kind of 1950s Swiss style of Mm -hmm. typography. And more importantly, the, the educational principles that came from that. I really think with the amount of students that are going through type and media and now becoming teachers, uh, we are going to see a wave of, uh, at least a change in that. And it mm-hmm. will, I wouldn't be surprised if in 20, 30 years um, there is a rejection to the Hague style of typography mm-hmm. simply because of the sheer, uh, again, evangelical nature of, <laughs> of, of its students. Right. Um, yeah. It will, I think, really shape design and typography. Interesting.
2: Earlier question you mentioned that um you learn already this way to um create forms. So in terms of process, like how do you begin working on a typeface?
1: I still like to sketch. Uh, as I said I was never someone that did a lot of art in high school. Even in uh at Emily Carr for my undergraduate degree. Uh, sketching and working by hand was not a thing I was comfortable with but I've since learned to become comfortable with it I'm not a great sketcher if you see me uh, uh hand letter type mm. uh, it's not great in fact if, if if you see my handwriting it's atrocious <laughs> i have possibly the worst handwriting um uh, of anyone i know but i still see the value in working by hand there's a there's a patience that's required there and there's this idea that every small inflection of your hand becomes a mark on the paper uh and you end up with these qualities that you just can't replicate easily when you work straight with vectors mm-hmm. uh, on a computer. And then translating from sketches to uh, computer software is always a bit of a challenge and you get better at it over time. You understand how to translate the warmth of what you see on paper to uh, you know mathematical curves, mm-hmm. uh, quadratic beziers and, and cubic beziers and things like that. Um, by the way, at, at in The Hague, one of the ex- assignments they give you is to actually um, reverse engineer the, I think it's the cubic Bézier, <laughs> yeah. so you have to come up with the math equation oh. to create Bézier uh, um, curves. And then create a circle out of that. Wow. Uh, and I don't ask me to do it ever again. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, it made perfect sense and it was completely intuitive, but now it's, yeah, it's, it's a foreign concept to me. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question, it's, it, you start with pen and paper. It's, it's really not that much more complicated. Uh, like anything, there's specific software. That uh, helps you actually with the technical side of it, but all the creative stuff is, is a combination of pen and paper and, and illustrator.
0: Mm-hmm. What about type design do you find, like, particularly challenging and rewarding? Challenging, uh, certainly
1: the unpredictability of it. Uh, as I've said, you're creating tools when you're designing typefaces, but you have really no sense of how that tool is going to be used. It's not like a hammer where, mm-hmm. um, we understand almost instinct, instinctively at this point how to use a hammer, which end does what, and what the other end does as well. You can use other things to, as a hammer, but a hammer is a pretty uh, clear object for use. Type is not that way at all. Um, we know that you create letters out of it, uh, but beyond that, why a certain typeface should be used in one context and why another used in a different context is for many designers still a, a, a challenging thing to uncover. Uh, marketing typefaces tries to make this clear for people purchasing and using type, primarily designers, but it's never a clear cut thing. Uh, a, a designer that I work with and have the utmost respect for, uh, a person by the name Peter Bielack, uh, he, I'll probably get this wrong. I uh, <laughs> apologize to him. But, uh, his typeface Fedra is, yes. is probably one of the more popular, uh, well-used, uh, more ubiquitous typefaces of the last 10 years. Uh, he originally created it out of a commission. Um, the commission was dropped and he kept it going with the idea that it would be used, I believe, for corporate communications. Mm-hmm. Um, He's since seen it used for education facilities, political groups, yeah. terrorist groups. <laughs> uh, and the list goes on of random things and never for, <laughs> never for the actual use that he intended it for. And maybe that's changed now, but I think it's a good example of, of this idea that you create tools, but the most challenging part of that process is you can never predict how that tool is going to be used. Mm-hmm. Language is so complicated just English is complicated. And then you start to expand that mm-hmm. to all of the various languages that type might be used to set and it just multiplies that challenge. Um, the most rewarding thing about type design for me, uh, I've always been fascinated by incredibly important things that no one cares about. <laughs> uh, I, I think architecture, if I wasn't a type designer or, or a graphic designer, I'd probably be an architect because mm-hmm. I also like the idea that buildings are things we use and are so important in our daily lives right. mm-hmm. but the uh f- for the most part the the goal of the architecture is not really to observe it too much mm-hmm. right there are of course architects that challenge that and do and challenge it very well uh, but I think for most people, most, uh, so-called lay people, uh, we don't observe architecture, right? We, we observe it when it's problematic, when we can't get somewhere, or when it's too hot, it's too cold, the sound is bouncing off the roof. But primarily, it's incredibly important. We just don't observe it. I think right. type is much the same. Mm-hmm. I think arguably one of the most important developments in, uh, in, in humanity is language. Mm-hmm. And type supporting visual language is, I think, inherently important, right? But we don't walk around the street and say, "Oh, that's a, a pretty typeface." Typically, um, that's changing again with the lettering mm-hmm. uh, appeal, the appeal of lettering. But I think that's still true, yeah. right? We mm-hmm. we use it; uh, it's incredibly important in our, our daily lives. But the goal, in, in a lot of ways, is to not observe it, mm-hmm. and that has always fascinated me. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we were looking at your fonts, Charlie, Publico, Stag, um, as we were researching to get ready for this interview. And we noticed that you started working on Charlie under the name Foxtrot while you were at Type Media. And we were wondering, was that like your first typeface that you had designed? And um, yeah, like did you design that with the intention of it becoming a product or a tool for people to like purchase and use
1: yeah. So Charlie, which is a slab serif, uh, type family in a number of weights and styles, uh, started as my thesis project at the type media program in The Hague. And it was at the time, uh, it was named Foxtrot. Uh, the name was changed simply because when we were getting ready for the release of it publicly, another, uh, studio came out with another typeface called Foxtrot <laughs> and we had to kind of scramble. Uh, it became Charlie because I was, uh, almost too lazy to think of another name <laughs> but I like this uh system of um, the military telephony language the Alpha Beta Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta oh, yeah. Eka right. Foxtrot oh, yeah, yeah. and so when it couldn't be Foxtrot it became Charlie, Charlie. <laughs> and then uh since then we've uh, produce a sans serif version of that, that is designed to work with Charlie, uh, and appropriately it's called Echo, uh, mm. in the same system of, of names, but of course the Echo of Charlie. Mm. Uh, I think I'll do a monospace version as well and call it Uniform, which is the name for you. So there's this whole convenient, um, uh, sy- system of, of names that allows me to yeah. be somewhat lazy and not have to, to come up with names. I just, I, I find more and more, I just, I'm not, uh, Arbitrary decisions are things that I shun.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not good at making arbitrary decisions. Anytime I can impose a system, I much prefer that. Yeah, sure. And it was simply that. So yes, it started out of, my, started out of KBK, uh, the media program. And when I finished there, it was never intended to be picked up, uh, or released. Uh, Peter Belak, again, uh, one of my teachers there, he, uh, he suggested he was interested in it and wanted to see it developed further. Uh, so we developed it further, and it was published, I think, uh, in 2011, uh, and it's done reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've still yet to see someone use it here, and uh, <laughs> I, I can only imagine my delight when I actually see it in Vancouver for the first time, but it's, uh, it's used more or less around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. Oddly, the Australians seem to love it. <laughs> the amount of licenses that I sell in Australia is uh, vastly disproportionate to any other uh, place. Uh, I don't think their population supports um, yeah. that ratio of, of licenses sold. But someday I'll go, to, I'll go to Australia and I'll be surrounded by my own letters. Oh,
2: nice. yeah. 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 you got to take a trip or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um.
2: So it seems like a huge undertaking. Um, how did it feel to push it out the door and like have it ready for use mm. for the public? It's, yeah, a huge under,
1: undertaking uh, is, is an understatement. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: uh, type design, there's no, it's, it's unique in the sense there's no real discernible end to the mm-hmm. project. You can always do more. And, and I don't, I don't just mean re- like more revisions and more fixing. You can always expand the project. And so for instance, uh, the character set, how many characters or glyphs are in a font? There's no rules for that. Every um, type studio has a different standard that they work with. Um, and of course, the, the broader the character set, typically the more languages that are supported. Uh, Thibautek, who Charlie has published through, uh, really, really prioritizes, uh, multilingual, um, uh, typefaces, So typefaces that support a, a huge array of alphabets and, and languages. Uh, they also really prioritize other scripts. So they do Arabic and uh, uh, they've done Thai. They've done a number of other um, scripts in addition to the Latin script. Uh and then of course you can design more weights, you can design more styles. Uh in my case you can design a sans serif and extend the project. You can design a monospace where all the letters are more or less the same width. Mm. There's no end to a project. At some point you just kinda have to call it quits and say, it's good enough. Let's you know, let's see it out the door, let's actually yeah. see it used. And then in turn you learn a lot from seeing it used and you want to overhaul it. Mm. And we've actually uh in the process of creating echo which will be released uh, early this fall, uh, fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> uh, we decided to overhaul Charlie as well. Mm-hmm. So Charlie will be re-released oh, uh, cool. in the same series of weights, um, but uh, using, say, some of the experience and knowledge gained, having kind of come out the other side, uh, I just wouldn't be content almost having seen it sit there. Mm-hmm. Uh even though it was selling and, and doing reasonably well.
2: So we assumed like public and Stag were completed and ready for purchasing after Charlie. And how did they become part of the commercial type founder instead of a uh, type attack?
1: Sure, so those two projects are unique for me in that they were um commissioned uh I guess maybe the better word is like subcontracted so my role was not so much as the primary designer on those projects uh those were both designed and conceived by Christian Schwartz um, and Paul Barnes at commercial type uh, I think both of them for publico and Christian I believe primarily if not exclusively for stag and mm. uh, they were very different projects. Uh, and it, it's a good example of commission work that's not through agencies. Uh, Stag was created for Esquire magazine originally. Mm. And uh, they created a serif and a sans serif. And then Esquire, as part of the ongoing development or evolution of the art direction of the magazine, mm. it's a fashion-based magazine. They have to evolve and change month to month, season to season. They, because a magazine is so... Uh, he- heavily, um, or because text is so dominant in the magazine, uh, they typically value type. And they value type as a way to evolve the style and mm-hmm. taste of the magazine. Mm-hmm. So creating a number of different styles of stag, there's a stencil version that I wasn't a part of, there's this kind of dot style version that I wasn't a part of, <laughs> yeah. and then there's this rounded version that I wasn't a yeah. part of, uh, became a way for Esquire to constantly evolve mm-hmm. uh, the art direction of the magazine. Mm-hmm. So I was involved in a very, uh, I'd say, Dedicated way to one part of that project uh, under the direction of Christian Schwartz at Commercial Type. And then they since released it uh, through the Commercial Type library. Publico was much the same, uh, although a bit of a different beast again. Uh, Publico was originally created by Christian Schwartz and Paul Barnes uh, as a concept for the Guardian newspaper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it was scrapped somewhere along the way and they decided to pick it up and release it through uh, their own yeah. library. Uh, I believe it was also used as a commissioned project for an Italian magazine as well. Mm-hmm. This happens a lot. Again, magazines are one of the main sources of, of custom type commissions. Right. Uh, less so in Canada, but in the United States, it's quite mm-hmm. large. Uh, and in that case, again, I was commissioned or, or contracted to uh, work on a very specific part of that project to help expand mm-hmm. the family of Publico. Mm-hmm. So they're they're less compared to Charlie and I. They're less my own projects mm-hmm. and more something that I was able to play a role in and mm-hmm. uh, really be exposed to some pretty phenomenal talent and designers. The nice thing about the type industry is it is very small, mm-hmm. and I think compared to graphic design, access to the so-called superstars of the industry or heroes mm-hmm. of the industry is very much within reach. Uh, I don't think you have to go to a master's program in type design to send an email and have a conversation with the best of the best in the industry. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in graphic design and a lot of other creative industries, I'd say probably fashion is probably the most extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, these people can be very, very out of reach. And so I, I love that about the industry. I love that it's very small. There's not that many people that dedicate their time to it full time. Mm-hmm. They're spread out around the world, but this creates this environment where everyone is very, very willing to interact and talk.
0: Um so we know um like type designers release sort of quote unquote updates like you're saying to their typefaces and we're wondering like what that means and if that is uh an update in the sense of like an app updating on your phone and how that affects like licensing and what you really own as like an owner of the product in the end.
1: Awesome question. Yeah. Uh you're hitting on something that I'm always thinking about. And I'm thinking about it because eventually I'd like to publish my own fonts through my own studio. Uh, it's something that I'm slowly gearing up to and will eventually happen. Uh, there's no immediate timeline for it. But as as I think about it, I think about how I would sell and how I would license type. And Fonts are software. Uh, at the core, it's a piece of software that you purchase a license to use and you have certain rights through that license, certain things you can't do, uh, and it sits somewhere on your computer just like any other piece of software. Mm -hmm. So you're right that updates to fonts are not that different than updates Mm -hmm. to other software. Uh, I'm really interested in this idea of whether you can apply that concept of uh, app updates, Mm -hmm. software updates even more so directly to type where you release almost a minimum viable product Mm -hmm. uh, right out of the gates. It's not. It might not be perfect. It might not be a huge character set knowing that you can always expand that. So I'm toying with this idea Mm -hmm. and actually trying to see if it could work in a prototype way. Currently, there's challenges there, but I think it can work. Mm -hmm. I think that you can adopt this idea of you don't have to do everything at once and it it also solves one of the problems of type design which is that it is such a lengthy process mm-hmm. uh any other industry from a kind of practical business financial standpoint if you said we're going to take 3 years to develop something it might not be a success mm-hmm. uh a person would look at you and say you're nuts why <laughs> would you invest that amount of time without any sort of you know royalty up front or or deposit up front mm-hmm. with only unpredictability as far as how it will be received and and licensed and so I think figuring out the yeah that minimum viable product uh, right out of the gates figuring out what people need and it's you know uppercase lowercase probably a few accents to support uh western central european languages some number sets maybe a limited number of weights figure out what that is it might be different for any given typeface release that and then offer some sort of subscription right. based mm-hmm. update and that's i think where it gets challenging um The difference between fonts and software is that when you update software, it replaces the old version. Mm -hmm. So versioning is is easy, right? You never have this idea that uh, version 1.2 exists and conflicts perhaps with version Mm 1.1. That's more problematic in type design and with fonts because you can have hundreds, in theory, versions of a font Mm -hmm. on your desktop at any given time. And when you're developing fonts, this is often the case because you've created different versions throughout the process. Mm -hmm. Knowing which is actually in use in your library um, then becomes very important. Mm -hmm. And it's challenging for me as someone that is surrounded by fonts and type every day to remember which version (coughs) has actually activated and being used in a document. It would be disastrous for a large agency to have to deal with this, right? right. So there's a big issue there that, that has to be solved before that idea of versioning could make sense for yeah. fonts completely. Uh, but I, I think in principle, it, it's very relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, the other issue is with updates. Uh, again, you're working with documents, right? And, uh, the spacing of fonts can change from version to version, mm-hmm. space between letters. And if you've, Set a document or design a document that has gone to print, and then say next year you want to update it, but that font has been updated in the meantime, and the spacing has changed. What was once a you know back and front brochure for something could now spill over to three or four pages because the spacing of the font has changed, and you might have to incur more cost to print or completely redesign it. So there's a bunch of issues there that are not yeah that that are not easy. You know, yeah. to figure out in the best of cases, and certainly if you're, you know, a designer that doesn't quite understand what this, what, what it is you're working with. Most designers at agencies, in my experience, don't even understand what OpenType is. <laughs>
0: so to get them to understand what uh, a version of a font they're working with might yeah. be a bit much.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I guess you can kind of see that starting with web fonts, right? Like hypothetically, Adobe Typekit can update their version of ProximaNova on everybody using that font across the internet and nobody would even probably realize or know although they would know once their layout breaks on their website
1: yeah I think <laughs> assuming assuming the layout is unaffected so assuming yeah. that the spacing yeah. of of the core character set doesn't change from version to version uh, you're right and I think that web type offers this uh, possibility where it didn't exist so easily before uh, assuming that web fonts are, are, uh, hosted as opposed to self-hosted. Mm-hmm. So you're using TypeKit or, for instance, Tipotech has a, uh, hosted, uh, service where oh, yeah. you have an account and you essentially buy a license to a font. They, you never actually see the font mm-hmm. yourself. They host it for you. They give you a bit of code and you plug that code into your, into your site. Uh, as long as that's the case, yeah, they could update it and prove it, continue working with it. Mm-hmm. You might never even pay anything more. And it will always work for you. Right. Uh, if it's self-hosted, the same problem will start to exist. Mm-hmm. Where uh, it's probably a little more clear because there's a there's an actual root directory that that is that that font is being stored in mm-hmm. on a server somewhere, mm-hmm. and you can just replace that file. And you know, as long as there's only one file in that directory, mm-hmm. um, it's the right version. Mm-hmm. It's a bit more clear, but it's not perfect. As long as it's hosted, I think we can solve that problem.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And web type's an interesting kind of area because it is developing and changing so rapidly. Uh, every month, every every season, every year, there is a a new practice, a new way of doing things, <laughs> and a new service. And and yeah. it's also a very confused time for web fonts. Uh, I'd say there is. 10%, if that, of web fonts that are well-built, well-designed, well-made for screen and for the web uh, and a whole slew of things that uh, a lot of misinformed designers are using in a misinformed way. Yeah. And it's by no means my forte. I'm, I'm admittedly, uh, I don't want to say slow to the game on web type, but uh, it's a, there's a lot of complexities there that I uh, have not had to deal with in my work so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can see it. As someone that is accustomed to looking at letters, you can see when a uh, typeface used on screen is built for that environment and when it is not it becomes quite apparent
0: mm-hmm. um, we're really interested in how you go about marketing the font or the typefaces that you work on and uh, if that's something like you personally take on or if Tipa uh, Tech or commercial you know run with that responsibility mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, marketing uh marketing is incredibly important in type and I think part of the reason why I've chosen still not to publish through myself is really a marketing uh issue. Mm-hmm. Uh Tipotec has a network that I can uh only dream of having. Mm-hmm. Uh and they have the ability to market to that network in a way that again I can just never do. Um it's becoming easier to market type as a solo or up and coming type designer. A lot of people are are doing this and a lot of foundries have actually popped up over the last few years that didn't exist before and doing quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a grilly type is an example of a, a type foundry that I think is relatively young, uh, has uh kind of come out of nowhere and is doing very, very well uh with their fonts. For me, yeah, marketing is important. It's a little bit, uh, managed by Peter at Tipotech. He does most of the marketing mm-hmm. for the release of Echo and the re-release of Charlie. Uh, I'm toying with the idea of actually, uh, contracting out the marketing, right. uh, bits to other designers, mm-hmm. uh, as a way of providing a bit of a third-party voice mm-hmm. to the project. Uh, I know how I want it to be used <laughs> so and imagine being used against that kind of unpredictable, unpredictable tool. Uh I think there's value in seeing how other designers use it even for the
2: marketing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um so all the typefaces on your website, are they all like for downloading or purchasing? Uh
1: the website uh at working format currently uh there's a range of things on there, partly portfolio, mm-hmm. partly available for purchase. Uh Charlie, for instance, is there. Uh there's a link to the Tipotech site. Uh, I'm not selling any of my, any of my work myself mm-hmm. currently. Again, it's something I'd like to do in the future, but it's uh it's a bit more than like to kind of bite off right now. Yeah. Um and then there's a few other projects that are works in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm trying to get better at showing things in progress. I've never been great at it, uh but uh people seem to respond well to seeing mm-hmm. things on Instagram, seeing things on my website that aren't quite finished. And so, a project I think it's called Buckshot on my website yeah. uh, is a project. Actually, it's the one I referred to a few that I started a few years ago, mm-hmm. but as, as a bit of a hobby. Uh, it started from a sign that I discovered in uh, on a trip to a small rural town in Quebec. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of farmer's uh, stand, and they were selling produce and jams and jellies and stuff. And they had this incredible <laughs> hand-painted sign nice. that had this lettering that. I still to this day wish I'd bought that sign and just (laughs) shipped it here. It would have been, in fact, I went up there and started talking to the ladies. They spoke barely any English, and I was trying to convince them that I was interested in their sign and not their jam <laughs> yeah. and uh, it was a very kind of yeah. challenging conversation right. to say the least. <laughs> but uh, uh, it started from that and it's mm-hmm. kind of evolving and, and what's online right now is I guess a, a, a previous iteration of the project mm-hmm. that will eventually see the light of day. Uh, there's no rush on it, mm-hmm. uh, I'm kind of adopting everything in its own time approach to uh my work and my projects. Um I have the luxury in the, to to do that right now. I don't feel the pressure to release anything.
2: Mm-hmm. I guess it's a bit of you know, double-edged sword, but uh yeah. Cool. So do our listeners get the uh, good guy discount on this there? <laughs> <laughs> if you knew how many hours we're we're slaves
1: behind a computer, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: ruining my back and my posture,
2: <laughs> hoping that people will pay full value for the software. So in our earlier conversation, you said you like to work some, like uh, on the project something uh, cultural. Um, we like how working format creates pieces that um, live in public spaces. And one of the portfolio pages on your website had the, um, the long scroll, beautiful posters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm from uh, from the uh, platform gallery
0: ones on the wall right Yeah
2: and on your site um working forward is indicated as one of the organizers of this project and can you tell us more about the work you're doing with In Transit BC?
1: Yeah for sure uh, we organize a series of poster exhibitions uh, we've done two now and I'd like to do more uh, where we invite uh, different designers. You, uh, they've been seven designers in the past couple exhibitions uh, throughout Vancouver. We give them a uh, series of constraints. Usually we come up with a theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first poster exhibition was all about different nicknames for Vancouver, and so things like Rain City and Hollywood North. The second exhibition was mm-hmm. different intersections in Vancouver. And so we tried to keep it very populous in nature, mm-hmm. uh, we give each designer a version of that theme. So one designer would get Rain City, uh, for the first exhibition. Another designer would get Hollywood North. And beyond that, they're given, they were given a, I mean, a small number of other constraints and they're asked to create a poster. The posters are three feet by four feet, I believe, mm. um, beautifully mounted behind, uh, quarter inch acrylic and exhibited usually for about six months at Waterfront Station in Vancouver. Uh, at one time as I was trying to get funding for these, I got to see the ridership numbers <laughs> for Waterfront Station, yeah. and I was blown away. It's yeah. in the millions uh, over a two- or three-month period wow. of people come, coming in and out yeah. of that station. Mm-hmm. Uh So we organized this, uh, and the idea came certainly from my experience in Europe as well. Uh In The Hague, there was this transit station there where they had taken over a lot of the space for advertising mm-hmm. and they had done these curated poster exhibitions where in that case they actually invited really, really notable designers from all over the world to do this. And they were beautifully backlit, um, so on and so on. And I just love this idea that you could transform a public space into uh, an opportunity for design. Right. And I think in Vancouver we're very preoccupied with design um, and design's relevance in a commercial setting mm-hmm. uh, for our clients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're underserved uh, when it comes to design in the cultural sphere. And people like to divide the two and say, well, if you're creating public, um, let's say visual, creative public work, mm-hmm. it's art. Um, if you're making a a dollar off of it, it's design. And there are these very strange separations that have never really made sense to me. And so the first exhibition, it came about because there was funding for Vancouver's 125th anniversary. So the theme related to that, of course. And I started applying for funding, but found out very quickly that we were ineligible because we were designers, uh, it was for arts based funding. And because we operate a for profit, you know, I guess technically a for profit enterprise, enterprise is a strange word when it's just myself.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: we were ineligible for this. So we had to find a number of ways to skirt that. And we ended up partnering with an organization that provided um, a not for profit status that we could mm-hmm. then kind of submit the proposal through. And we ended up getting the funding for it and did the exhibition. Um, and the response was great because I think even designers recognize, hey, this is a nice reprieve from our day-to-day work with clients. And you're right, there is this value for design um, that goes far beyond the commercial application of it. And I think design is at its best when it marries that commercial and the cultural value of it, of its services, right? Uh, and then through through the kind of process of setting it up. I had this feeling that it would just put us in touch with people. And so you asked earlier, like, where do I get work? And I, I guess, simplified things by saying I've never really had to look for work. Um uh, initiating projects is, I guess, in fairness, a way of looking for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we create things and we put them out there, um, knowing that the product of that people might find interesting, but I think when it comes to larger projects like these exhibitions, because there's so many uh, hurdles you have to jump through, you end up having to talk to people, Mm -hmm. pick up the phone, have coffee with someone, and when you do that, you end up talking about a number of other things that go way beyond, you know, the reason you're sitting down with them. Mm-hmm. And some of the best projects I have, um, both the enjoyable ones, but also uh, the projects that have become long lasting clients that have really kept our studio alive financially have come directly from these poster exhibitions. Mm-hmm. And you don't go into it with, you know, certain expectations. We're going to get two clients out of this. Quite the opposite. I don't want, I don't want to yeah. convince anyone that it's, it's this, <laughs> you know, we're getting other designers to help out with something that there's a personal financial gain from. It's not that at all. It's just the inevitability of doing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it puts you in touch with people. And it doesn't matter sure. what
0: you do. If you talk to people, things come from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we, so we noticed that there was like six, designers kind of per series or six or seven, I guess. Um, but we also noticed that they were sort of studios or companies or agencies. How did you go about like selecting those studios or those designers?
1: We were really interested in trying to find designers who are uh, professional designers working in studios because we thought that that was underserved in the public art sphere Uh, And I think that uh, there's some idealism there that has to always be tempered a little bit, but I'm kind of still glad that we did that Mm -hmm. and are are doing that. Uh, As far as choosing and who we choose, we tried to find a broad range of people. Sometimes we knew them already. uh, Most of the times we didn't. Uh, We tried to be fair and go well beyond our network. Uh, We each time took one as working format, uh, just to provide yeah. ourselves that creative outlet, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, post projects, uh, Vancouver Studio, uh, did one each exhibition. They were unique in that sense. They kind of pinch hit for us in the first time around, uh, very last minute. And so we went, went, went back to them the second time around and gave them the opportunity to do a second poster as kind of a thanks. Mm-hmm. And those guys are tremendous. Mm-hmm. They did, I think, great posters both times. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that's really it. I I think just like the process of creating it puts you in touch with people, Uh, part of the benefit for us was that I also got to meet a bunch of different designers that I had never met before. Um, Phoebe Glassford behind Glassford and Walker... Uh, I've always respected her work. Yeah. Um, it's always, you know, primarily type based mm-hmm. and I've always respected that. Uh, but I never had an opportunity to, re- you know, reach out and get in touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, this provided the opportunity and we don't see each other often, but when I run into her, she runs into me. I always enjoy
2: seeing her. Yeah. You know? Cool. So, um, who approved the, uh, final artwork? So was it in Transit BC or were you given complete creative freedom? Yeah.
1: Amazingly, we were given a lot of freedom, complete, is always probably beyond (laughs) expectation. Uh, and we tried to involve them as much as possible. Uh, it was important to us that this was a group effort. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just myself and my wife at the time organizing this. There was, you know, some, there was some, I guess, committee behind it. Uh, committee in a good sense, I guess. Uh, so in transit was very involved, but to their credit, they, they stood back and re-let really us do our thing. And that I think spoke to the amount of trust that we developed with them. Uh, Colleen Nempton, uh, who runs currently the public art program at in transit, uh, for the Canada line is one of my favorite people in Vancouver. <laughs> uh, she has her hand and feet in a number of different public art related things and has just this wealth of experience that, uh, um, I'm always Fascinated and entertained by.
2: Um, I guess so. We finally came down to our um, last set of questions. Uh, And previously, you said um, that um, work for the platform gallery is the most memorable project. Um, Do you have any other memorable project, or is that the one? Yeah, that certainly the platform gallery stuff is memorable just because of the
1: people I got to meet doing it. And I hope that I can do more of it at some point uh, where free time is easier to come by. Uh, I think as far as memorable memorable projects, definitely the type design work uh, that I do and the type designs that I uh, initiate myself, Mm -hmm. uh, they're very slow moving, as I said before, uh, but when you see them finished and you're able to say enough is enough, uh, no more revisions are going (laughs) to improve this, I can't see it so no one else can see the difference. Yeah, Yeah. It's a really nice thing to click submit on three years worth of work right. that amounts to a file size of about 500 yeah. kilobytes. <laughs> I think it's the, the the time invested to file size ratio uh, is at an uh, outrageous extreme when it comes to type design, and it's kind of a symbol of the
0: the uh, the enjoyment of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We ask all of our guests if they're satisfied with the current status of their practice, and yeah, we're wondering if you're satisfied right now. In short,
1: yeah, definitely, I'm satisfied. Uh, I love what I do. I love coming to work, uh, even when I'm, you know, frustrated. Something's gone wrong. I think I still wake up the next day and, and yeah, have a, a bit of a drive to to do it again or do it differently. Um, I think I, I in fairness. I suffer from a lot, a lot of creative people suffer from, which is never being happy on the other end of a project. Mm. And I think I've just learned to accept that, I guess. Uh, that's a small you know, moment-by-moment moment thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but yeah, certainly I, I love what I do, and I'd I love to keep doing it. Um, I always want to spend more time on type design. And I try, and I've been trying, to really refocus and reposition working format as just a type design studio. Mm-hmm. Um there's a name for it, which I won't say now because it'll make it real. And then I really will actually have to do some, you know, some heavy lifting to follow that up. Uh, but I, I like having that flexibility. Uh, this will be a total tangent to the conversation now, but one of the things I'm working on, which is, um, happily taking my attention away from other things and from being a type design studio specifically is actually launching my own food product. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, nice. so it's, it, Again, I should watch what I say because anytime <laughs> you say something, that makes it too real and, and you have sure. to do it. But, uh, I, I won't say too much about it, but we're trying to develop, uh, a bar related product. Um, and it's the first time we've been on the other, other end of the brand development process. Yeah. You know, I spent so long and so much of my time, uh, with clients, mm-hmm. understanding their goals and their visions and then trying to translate that into some sort of story, uh, and i 've always felt that story is very important, and usually clients come to us because they think it 's important, but i 've gained a totally new respect for um, very simple things on the client' side, um, simple things like their budget, why they can 't afford more than they can afford right. because as soon as you actually cost that and are building your own product, you realize that pennies matter
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, <laughs> yeah so we're we 're building this project myself and a, and a good friend of mine who 's also a designer in the city. Uh, hopefully it gets launched uh, sometime this fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also becoming a, a father at the end of October. Oh, wow. So these two things are happening <laughs> kind of simultaneously. <laughs> and there's a very, very specific window yeah. about when this, when <laughs> this, uh, uh, um, <coughs> Food product can launch or else yeah. it's launching sometime in the very distant future. Yeah. Uh, but that's a nice kind of, you know, fire under my ass, get this done, make it happen, do it kind of, kind of thing. So between the type design, teaching, uh, graphic design projects, the occasional platform gallery, self-initiated stuff, and, uh, this random food product, wow. leave out the generic food product for now. Um, I have my hands full, but I
0: like it. We're interested if you could kind of instill in people three words to describe working format, what those three words would be. The practice or the work? Let's say the work. Let's
1: say practical, astute, and uh, I think a verb
0: for a tool. Useful. That's, right. just right. yeah. That's just practical though. It's just practical. The same yeah. thing. That's awesome. Yeah, let's call it that. Right. Cool. Um where can people find you online? Uh you can find me online at workingformat.com, uh
1: Instagram Workingformats and uh soon at a undisclosed location for
0: a food product. Nice. <laughs> Man, thank you so much for meeting with us today
1: Thanks.
0: my pleasure, it's been uh, awesome chatting um, yeah and you can also hit us up on SoundCloud or at makingconversation.ca uh, there's many ways to find us online um, and if you have any feedback for Ross that you'd like us to relate to him um, that you don't somehow feel comfortable <laughs> with doing on your own <laughs> seeing as you just uh, said where you can contact him, you can get it Get at us at feedback at makingconversation.ca. Thank you very much for listening in.